The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic UK. And thank God I hear you cry. The Fulhamish Podcast is over for the 2021 season. No longer will you have to listen to the likes of myself, Jack, Peter, Farrell, Ben, moan about fine margins or discuss whether Alexander Mitrovic should or should not start at the weekend. A calamitous campaign punctuated by a few high moments is finally over and we can start looking forward to another season of sky bet championship oh here we go again and here to discuss the 2021 season looking back and also a little bit forward is the regular thursday crew on a wednesday of fulham's writer for the athletic peter rutzler hello sammy how you doing fine thank you i've got the end of season carnival mood and jack collins hello listeners how are we Fine, thank you. Europa League final day for Jack. This is this is basically his nirvana. It's Christmas day for me in many yep. ways. Um, you know, the Europa League final, everyone's having a good time. It's all my Christmases come at once. Um, I just wish Fulham were less bad at football. <laughs> well, if, if today's your Christmas day, then what is Saturday for you? Well, the... What the Champions League final or the playoff final? Well, just generally, what could happen in both in both sections of, of the day? Well, it just has a potential to be the worst day of all time, doesn't it? Like, I mean, even like even if both things go our way, it's just relief, like pure relief. And if both things go wrong, then yeah, I mean, Putney Bridge, Putney Bridge Club, right? That's that's what we're at. It's literally having a group therapy session at eleven p.m. on on Putney Bridge. Well, we do have previews for this, and I don't think it stings quite as badly as Saturday could. But obviously, when we went down in twenty fourteen, I believe that that lot of the road run the Europa League, and they were the first kind of English club to do it. Maybe since we didn't do it, and then QPR one promotion in the playoffs and that felt like quite a kind of triple blow but yeah and I mean, Bobby Jack Zamora this... scored the winner didn't he of all the yeah people. so that that we have got previous in this but I, I think that lot doing on Saturday would be worse yeah I, I, I would rather they didn't let's put it that way I would rather they didn't I'm with a Brentford fan on Saturday as well and I might have to smack him around the head if they win anyway let's um not think about that lot and let's um look back at Sunday first of all Peter the joy <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Thanks for lifting the mood, Sammy. Decisions that I have made and not paying £40 for that one is a good one as far as I'm concerned. £40 still in my wallet and I didn't have to endure that. Peter, it was a happy occasion in lots of ways because fans were back at the cottage. And I'm sure for you, after doing 20 to 21 games at Craven Cottage this season without fans, it must have been really, really nice. But also... God, what an awful way to kind of welcome back those 2,000 fans. Well, it was only fair. I mean, you know, I've, I've sat through them all this season. <laughs> I mean, if everyone else has come back in, they needed to have a taste of it as well. Um, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was nice to have supporters back in the ground. It's It's been, you know, as we've talked about endlessly, it's been very, very strange. And it was what was really odd, I think, was sort of the contrast with the Liverpool game the last time supporters were in where where fans just seem to raise the intensity of the team and it just didn't seem to happen on on Sunday. It was very, very flat, particularly in the first half. Um, I think you guys talked about it in the podcast earlier this week where it, was, it wasn't even like a training game. 
like it, you normally see more intensity in a, in a pre-season match where you know there's stuff on the line but that first half was just so slow and I mean Newcastle didn't exactly commit themselves yet they still managed to grab the goals they needed and it was a, a fitting end to uh, the season in a way um, in a miserable kind of way and um, you know it was yeah such a spectacle that I, uh, I don't think I actually mentioned it at all in my piece afterwards so yeah one to forget really but ni- nice to have everyone back in the ground anyway and moving towards next season and, and getting full full crowds in hopefully would um, will be nice it'll be a nice uh, remedy for these past uh, what 12 18 months now that's a long time I mean, I guess, Peter, the main positives from the day were a good performance by Fabio Carvalho. He should have got an assist if if Ivan Cavallero could finish his dinner. Um, and a Premier League debut for Tyrese Francois, which I read earlier this week makes him the 53rd Australian to ever play in the Premier League. Oh, lovely. That's a lovely little stat, Sammy. Thanks. Yeah. Um... That's all right. Save that for your piece, Peter. <laughs> Thank me later. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they were definitely the, the bright the bright spots from from the game. It was a shame Sylvester Jasper didn't get on and, and get his Premier League debut as well. Um, he's sort of been in and around the, the first team in terms of training this year and next season will be big for him. You know, he needs senior minutes. I think everyone sort of talks about that um, in the academy setup and whether that's in the championship or or elsewhere, we'll, we'll see. But no, it was great for, for Francois. We've, we've talked about him before. It was quite unusual that he played wing back. You know, he's quite versatile as a player. He's, he's more a midfielder though and... Um, he, he did a job. He did what he had to do. He was, he, you know, nothing, nothing glaring as, as from tried to get back into it. So great moment for him. Um, he's got his eyes set, hopefully on the Olympics, potentially he's in the provisional uh, Olympic squad for Australia um, oh, next cool. month. So we'll see if he's involved in that. Um, you know, I'm sure there'll be other, other factors may, may come into play with, with preseason and whatever, but it was good to see, um, good to see him do that. And obviously Carvalho again, he's three consecutive games in a row now. And, um, yeah, he should have had an assist, shouldn't he, when Caviero blazed over the bar. And I think he was probably the player with the most intensity in the game. He's played without fear in all three of his his starts. Uh, and it bodes really, really well for next season. And I think what was really encouraging uh, was, you know, he gave an interview to the Match Day programme and he speaks so um, so positively about next year. He's really ambitious, you know, to talk about wanting to win the Ballon d'Or as a long-term personal aim. So um, that, all, that all bodes really well. And... Um, yeah, it was good, and you know, it was uh, it was a nice moment too for his former coach, a guy called Greg uh, Crutwell, who who founded and runs Ballam FC, uh, which is the team Carvalho played for after he moved from Portugal as a youngster. Uh, had a chat with him for the game, and um, he was in the stands watching on. Uh, had his, his Ballam tracksuit on as well, and um, yeah, he's he was such an exceptional player at that point as well. I think it was one they realised quite early that had a lot of potential and attracted a lot of interest from Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, Man United as well. So, uh, but Fulham, Fulham got their hands on him and uh, hopefully next season he can play an important role. Um, Jack, I was just interested to know what was the kind of like match day experience like at the cottage? You know, was it was it queuing to get into the ground? Um, did you have to be there super early? How did you kind of leave the ground? I mean, just slightly interested in the the technicalities of it as much as much as anything because I saw a lot of people complaining about the queues um, to get in I just wondered if you were kind of caught up in that Sammy logistics coming through here um (laughs) it was fine um to be honest from from my standpoint the the queue took about 10 minutes um to to get in you know you queued up they asked for your ticket and your your ID showed that we had a bit of a funny one where my brother was using an ID like a 
almost a student ID. And the bloke looked at him and was like, not sure they're going to accept that, mate. And then he was like, uh, okay, all right. And he was like, go through anyway. And then no one else checked any ID. So he was like, he was the ID guy, clearly. <laughs> he was just <laughs> like, not sure anyone's going to accept that, mate. And then was like, but go through. <laughs> he was like, right, all, all right. right. Okay, mate, cool. Um, so so that was that was fun. Um, yeah, the queue was fine. Um, it, it took, let's say, 10 minutes, I'd say, from queued up just outside that little health center um, uh, as you go down towards Hammersmith. Um, and yeah, we're in our seats within 10 minutes. I mean, the match day experience was a bit weird. Like, obviously, the bars weren't open. You weren't really allowed to stand in the concourses. The whole thing was a one-way system, which you can understand. Um, and then the atmosphere, like, started, it was quite fun. And then literally <laughs> five minutes in, everyone was like, oh, there's literally no intensity to this game whatsoever. Um, mm. and, and it kind of died to death um, in, in some ways. But it was nice to be back, and it was nice to just chat to people and stuff. Um, you know, it, it was all quite pedestrian in many ways but i mean what do you expect from an end of season dead rubber with fulham already relegated it was it was hardly going to be you know if fulham had come out with a last hurrah flying and and, and battling i think maybe the crowd would have got a bit more up for it but as it was it was sort of like oh it's nice to be back at the cottage god this game's bad isn't it um and, <laughs> yeah. and that was basically the the kind of overwhelming reaction i think from pretty much everyone in the hammersmith then yeah totally okay well that's interesting to kind of yeah as you say sammy logistics uh in, in operation i just think for someone that hasn't been to the cottage for either of those two matches didn't get tickets for the liverpool or brighton game so couldn't go to this one on on sunday i'm quite thankful for it i, I can't quite imagine it with like so few supporters in the ground um at all obviously one of the slightly controversial moments of the game was the kind of end of season walk around the pitch which is always odd enough anyway when you've gone down and everyone's kind of showing mutual respect although no one's massively happy to be there on on either side um peter but no mitrovic no kearney that doesn't send a great message as far as i'm concerned i guess mitrovic i can slightly understand a bit more but tom kearney club captain bit bit odd no i didn't understand that um I don't actually know where where either of them were. I know Alexander Mitrovic, Scott Parker said, was, was injured with a glute problem, but Harrison Reed was there. Um, so was Anthony Robinson. Both of them are, are injured. Um, yeah, it didn't look good. And I don't think people were very happy about it within the club as well as outside the club. Um, it just doesn't look good. And, I, you know, I obviously it's a, a lap of honour. Well, I know that seems to get a little bit ridiculed, but I think it was definitely the right thing to do. And especially in the circumstances with supporters coming back into the ground, it's, you know, it's, it was, it wasn't a lap. It was a, you know, thank you for supporting us. You know, we'll do better kind of vibe. Um, and, you know, I think that was pretty appropriate, but yeah, in terms of where Kearney and, and Mitrovic were, I don't know. And then Scott Parker himself said he didn't, didn't know. And it, yeah, it doesn't look good at all. Um, Maybe there is a fair reason for it. Um, that's not something I've I've found out or heard about as of yet. So um, not a good not a good um, thing really. Because um, as you say, you know, Joachim Anderson was there. I mean, if you're going to assume players who wouldn't have been there for that sort of farewell, you, you'd look at the loanees who have all now sort of departed. They've had all their departing messages on social media and, and from the club account as well. You know, someone like him didn't necessarily need to be there. Obviously, it was nice that he was and you'd expect him to be there. But it's a bit different when one's Mitrovic, who's, you know, been such an important player for a long time. Uh, and then obviously club captain Kearney. So, 
Um, no, I want to, uh, not, not the best way to end the season for them, but for, for everyone else, it was nice. It was nice to see the, the players go around. And it was interesting just to see the reception, actually, that the team and the manager got. Um, generally, I thought it was actually very, very positive, particularly when the team were coming out to warm up. Um, I think there were a few boos for Loftus Cheek when he when he came on, um, and there was a lot of anger when Caballero missed his his sitter as one of many this this year. Unfortunately for him, um, but in general, it seemed relatively positive when it could have been a little bit more negative considering relegation. I mean, Jack, I think Peter sums it up there that Loftus Cheek was part of the end of season lap. If there was anyone that I would have actually potentially forgiven for for not going. <laughs> especially he's got booed when he came on the pitch, it would be Loftus Cheek. So for then Kearney and Mitro, who no one would have had any ill feeling towards, as you say, Pete, as Peter says, there might have been a legitimate reason, but if there was a legitimate reason, you'd have thought the club would have come out quite quickly to explain it justify. Or, or either of them that, you know, they're both on social media. They both have their own accounts. Like they, it'd be yeah. very easy to, to say why they weren't there. I'm sure if they, if they wanted to, and, and yet here we are. Um, the, the, the weird, I mean, there's a couple of bits. Loftus-Cheek, I mean, to be fair to him, uh, came down on his own, like, after the game to clap, which I thought was a bold move. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, well, fair play to you. I wouldn't have done that. Um, no. Yeah, so, so I mean, yeah, some respect, at least, for just for having the bottle to do that. Um, slash, maybe the just non-wherewithal that he hadn't really understood what was going on. Um, but... But yeah, that was, that was a bit one. The other thing about the lap was, well, not the lap, the, the, the clap was Scott just sort of looked at his feet for the whole time. It was all a bit weird. Like he just sort of stared at the ground and like clapped with his hands above his head and sort of didn't really look at anyone and then walked mm. off. It, it was all just a bit weird, to be honest. I thought Scott was pretty deflated after the game in terms of his post-match press. Um I think his vibe has certainly become a lot more deflated since relegation, which you can sort of understand. But it was a really... I don't know. It wasn't exactly someone. I mean, he spoke about in his before the game, you know, being ready to go, raring to go, whatever for for the next challenge. But um, yeah, he was really, really quite um, downbeat. And I, you know, at the moment, we're just trying to read into everything in terms of what what what's coming across, every word, every sort of sign and signal, because it's still not that clear what is going to happen next. And yeah, it was. I, I mean, as Jack said, it was. It, you know, his head was down on the on the walk round. It wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a, wasn't exactly a upbeat sort of impression he gave anyway. Okay, well, the only one that I think I will say, Jack, is I fully agreed with you boys um, on Monday, saying that I thought it was really, really odd that the likes of Ariola, Anderson, Lamina didn't get the chance to play in front of fans. If there was a game that you were going to bring back, the likes of Marek Rodak, etc., surely that would have been away at Old Trafford. Not when we want to see that you know players like Ariola, Anderson get a kind of firm farewell from the. The, the the Fulham crowd and also I think a win in that game would have been so uplifting for everyone um I, I I think the way that Scott kind of played it in terms of his squad selection was was really really odd and weird and I just I, I don't think Scott's coveting himself in a lot of glory and he, he's making himself harder and harder to defend each week even though I still am in his camp but I, I find it a little bit baffling it was quite underwhelmingly negative I thought I mean it was the last day it was in front of fans and I know that they explain with the back four and whatever else, but there really should have been a bit more impetus. Like the teams to actually go for it and maybe bring on Jasper, bring on Madger earlier, you know, like 
actually go for the game here. There was nothing to lose, was there, really? And no, literally nothing. And we, we, we fell to a damp squib of a 2-0 result where, you know, I said it on Monday, but <laughs> we lost 2-0. And can you remember the centre-backs having anything to do? Like, exactly. Newcastle offered very, very little in the game. So it was it's all very, very strange. And, um, you know, and we're still sort of... He's, Parker sort of talked about being committed to the next steps, but, you know, what, whether he actually is and um, what what's coming... You know, he, he talked about after the game about wanting a break, which is fine, understandable, but doesn't doesn't really work like that. You know, people don't just go on holiday when the team's relegated. You've got to start planning. So... Um, you know that that may have been just a ruse. You know, talks have been happening in these couple of days, but it's um, yeah, it was a very strange way to end the season. Yeah. Okay. Well, afterwards, we're going to have a look back at the season as a whole. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Peter Rutzler. Hello. And Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. Uh, Peter, question from S. James here, who wants to know who you will be relegating in Euro 2020 if you are covering any teams. Is it going to be a bad summer for Albania or or maybe uh, Slovakia are going to have a dreadful Euros? Um, Maybe you're going to get given a a team close to home like Wales. Um, Is there anyone that your curse will be overlooking this summer at the Euros or is that not how it's working anyway? (laughs) It's not working like that, but I've got my eye on Scotland, so. So um, if there's any way I can relegate them, that'd be good. Leave Scotland alone. (laughs) (laughs) No, very much, very much go for Scotland. I think that's, uh, I think that's a perfect appointment, Peter. Um, If you want to keep up to date with the best coverage of Euro 2020, by the way, make sure you're signed up to The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. If you want to get it for one pound a week, uh, you'll get unbelievable analysis of of the tournaments as a whole. It will be the best place uh, for you to stay completely up to date with with, with everything that's happening across the kind of pan-European competition. Uh, And also you'll be able to listen to all their podcasts advert-free, including the new England podcast that has been set up by The Athletic hosted by Dan Bardell and Mark Chapman uh, and you'll be as I say no adverts if you listen on the Athletic app your best place uh, to follow the tournament theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod uh, so let's look back at the season as a whole and I thought we should start at the beginning seems like a fairly logical place to uh, seems like a fairly logical way to do so it so said the sound of music right yeah, exactly. And Jack, it, it was a really, really difficult start. It was a four-week break and, and that game against Arsenal, if there was any illusions that Fulham were going to, I don't know, waltz into this league and have a lovely time despite all the evidence um, suggesting the contrary, um, it was a massive bump back down to earth after kind of the elation just five weeks earlier of the playoffs. Yeah, I mean kind of fitting that it, it, at the time it felt, you know, like, oh, Arsenal are quite a good side, aren't they? They're, they're, they've done well. Um, and then you look at it and that's the only three assists Willian got for the for the year. Um, and they were all against us on the opening day, which is a slight <laughs> concern, isn't it? Um, look, I, I think it, it was always going to be tough. You know, Arsenal at that point were coming off quite a good summer. They'd won the FA Cup in their last game. So they were, you know, looking at this and thinking, okay, maybe do we kick on this year? Obviously their campaign hasn't gone to plan either um but you know it, it was always going to be difficult like it was always going to be it was always going to be tricky and and, and thus it proved and you know, I think the calamity for the first goal was where it all went wrong right and, and 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 I think you saw that a couple of times so obviously in the first game against Arsenal we conceded after eight minutes the next game against Leeds we conceded after five you know the next game against Villa we conceded after four it was it, it really was you know 
panic stations from the beginning of games. And I remember talking about it being like, if we could just get through the first 10 minutes, we might be all right. Um, yeah. Obviously, we went and then lost to Wolves. Um, and that was a much tighter game, much time. You know, it felt like Fulham were, were at least in that one. But at the point, it, you know, it felt like we couldn't stop conceding early. And, and from there, we could never do anything in games. And so I guess, yeah, of course, like, it was always going to be a tight turnaround. It was always going to be a tough start. But, you know, to, to, to capitulate the way we did early on in games felt difficult from the very beginning. It was all a bit, bit, bit fraught, wasn't it? A bit frantic. I think you sort of summed it up there, Jack, not just in terms of the starts, but everything, you know, the transfer market as well. It was all, what's going to happen? We need to get these defenders in. Um, I think it was, was it Marlon whose who's, who's transfer collapsed. I think David Ornstein reported and... Um, it was, Omar Colley was coming in at one Omar Colley was coming in. Was, I think I did a list. I think I did a list at one point. It was something like 22 <laughs> defenders were linked, weren't they, with, with Fulham in the summer. And um, it was crazy, that just desperation to get defenders in. And then obviously when they did come in, there was that change. You saw the turn, not just to do with um, the players, but there was also that slight tactical tweak, which we got a sort of sense of against Wolves and, and Sheffield United with that sort of back four slash five with a wing back who's also playing further forward and which became Bobby Deckard over Reed's sort of uh, sort of main role. And you, you, at that point, you started to see a shift, but it was properly, it was very bleak at the, in those early weeks. And I think, I mean, Jamie Carragher came out and and, uh, and said he'd never been more sure that Fulham would be relegated after the Villa game. It was the Villa game was probably the Nadir, wasn't it? That was probably the lowest oh, point. Yeah. Um, particularly, obviously, had Tony Khan coming out and tweeting. I think Jamie Carragher called him a clown and, it was all just a bit of a mess, um, and then then it was once once the transfer once transfer deadline day came around, it um, started to level out a little bit. Yeah, I think transfer deadline day was a big moment, Jack. And then following that, there was the game um, at Sheffield United, which we got our first point. Obviously, didn't end exactly the way we wanted. A really meek um, defeat by Crystal Palace, but the win against West Brom was a really uplifting one, not just because it was our first win of the season, but it was such an impressive victory as well. It was hard to read too much into it because it was against an opponent that we were pretty sure was going to be, if not in the relegation zone, definitely in relegation danger. But it was such an impressive win, the style of it. Getting a clean sheet as well felt like a big moment as well, considering we were so worried about Fulham's defence. Yeah, um, absolutely. It did feel like a... It felt like a not a, a saving moment, but a breakthrough, right? In that we were like, right, we we impressed our own game on someone for the first time in the season. I think that was probably maybe the, the turning point for me. It was the first time we looked like we were in control of a fixture, um, and yeah. we and we played it. We played it out really nicely. I thought we were really good that day. And um, yes, it was against West Brom, but it, it looked for the first time like we were going to kick on. And actually, I think you look at the games after that: the West Ham United game, where. I mean, let's not. Um, but <laughs> but you, you look at that and the way that that goal was offside and maybe the the fact that that shouldn't have counted and then the missed penalty, it felt like, you know, we, we, we somehow turned a corner and then there was that kind of crazy Everton game where everything sort of turned on its head again and we conceded after a minute and it was all like, oh God, we're going down this rabbit hole again. I'd really do without this. Um, but on the whole, just, you know, it, it felt at this point like Fulham was starting to find their feet somewhat. Um now, look, you can argue here, and it's very easy to argue, that suddenly as soon as the players were in, as soon as the, the, the players who'd come in on deadline day had come in and got settled, it was easy for them to kick on. Um, and and maybe, that's, maybe that's a point to be made. Um, I think there is, there is definitely 
merit in the argument that the, the transfer business was done far too late. I do, however, think it's slightly caveated by the fact that this summer's turnaround was so short. But that said, we've seen this as a recurring theme throughout the, the years of Tony Khan at the helm. And and I think that when you look at this like this, you, you have to say if those deals or some deals to strengthen Fulham had been done earlier, maybe we wouldn't be looking at this in the same way. Yeah. Uh, and Peter, obviously a big turning point in the season, or at least it felt like it was going to be a turning point, was the win at Leicester. And um, we'd kind of had those two disappointing wins against West Ham and Everton. And I think we were kicking ourselves because we saw the run of games, Leicester, Man City, Liverpool, uh, you know, Liverpool very much still had the allure that they had, you know, rightly got from the season before Leicester had had a brilliant start to the season to go to the King power and win like we did with those two goals in the first half really made a few people stand up and notice Fulham. Yeah, it was, it was exactly that Sammy, the, the run of fixtures. I think it was, it felt very, very bleak at that point. If I remember it was a win that took Fulham out of the bottom three, which, you know, <laughs> feels so long ago now, but um it was a very, very good performance. And as you say, it made, made people sit up and take notice. It was a, the clear example of Fulham playing on this counter-attacking style that, and showing a, a ruthless edge as well, which unfortunately wasn't something that would, would last. But uh, the back five, Caviero up front, and Gisa, probably his best performance of the season uh, in midfield. Um, and it was impressive. And obviously that was a game that the penalty demons were, were buried when, when Caviero scored from the spot as well. Um, and it was at that point you sort of thought, okay, those recent performances, West Brom, West Ham, were weren't just sort of anomalies. There's a there's a there's a there's the makings of a team here, and um, it was at that point. I think then Fulham obviously went to City and played well. Still lost two 0 City, I think, didn't make a sub in that game. But you know, you, you again, you saw the signs, and then it was a Liverpool match with fans back in the ground, and uh, were really unlucky not to win the game because of the because of the penalty awarded uh, for handball. After that, Jack Fulham went on this kind of bizarre run of, of five draws in a row, which felt really positive. But I guess was a big part of Fulham's problem in the end was you know too many draws, not enough wins. Um, but it it was quite a, an excited time. Because we got some good results, like away at Spurs and that Liverpool game, but also peppered in there were a few games where Fulham really should have gone on and got three points, particularly um, the game at home against Brighton, which we were poor, the game against Southampton, which we were fairly poor as well. And of course, the game at St. James's Park, where Fulham were actually good, but got robbed. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And, and I think maybe... There was so much about this period that felt like Fulham, and we saw it throughout the course of the year, right? We saw Fulham go and get a good result, and then the next game looked like they were almost knackered by getting the good result. And we saw that, you know, the draw against Liverpool, and we thought three days later, home against Brighton, this is where we kick on, and we just didn't, right? And then we were good the week after that against Newcastle, and should have won and were, I, I think, unfairly taken apart. I think most people will agree. Um, and then we had the game against Southampton where, again, it just there was just it was just a nothing game, wasn't it? There was just it just didn't really ever spark into life. Get, go and get a point at Tottenham, obviously with a, a brilliant header from Cav um, after coming from much trick. And then the game against Chelsea, the Robinson red card, you look at it and you think, oh, that's a nightmare because without that, do Fulham suddenly get something against Chelsea for the first time in a while? And I think that was the story of the season, right? We, we, we'd we have some moment where we thought, oh, excellent. The Everton game we'll come on to, I'm sure we win. And then we 
fall back on ourselves against Burnley. You know, you get a win against Sheffield United. You, yes, let's kick on and fall back on ourselves against Palace. And I think when you when you look at this, it became a recurring pattern that Fulham couldn't couldn't spur themselves on to get a couple of results in a row. And what you really need here in these periods is to string a couple of wins together that really does start to lift you out of trouble. Yeah, I, I think that's a really true thing. And even look at teams like kind of Brighton and Newcastle this season. All they did was go on one run, like one or two, in maybe Brighton's case, one or two like mini runs. That's all they did. And Full never, ever managed to kind of etch something together. And I guess, Peter, what the shame is, is we didn't realise it at the time, but February was as good as it was going to get full and we thought february right this is the start of something really special but actually that that week where we won at everton drew at burnley won against sheffield united then drew at palace genuinely was the season highlight and that's why we went down i guess what's most disappointing is that you know coming into the everton game obviously never winning at goodison park but fulham really needed to get something that week i remember that week was huge we really were bigging it up because it was everton burnley sheffield united had to get the results in those matches otherwise it just well there was next to no hope by that point because of the draw at West Brom which Fulham should have won they should have been freeing the lap at half time uh, were poor against Brighton at the Amex um, but then Fulham managed to raise themselves for it you know they actually managed to do that managed to go to Goodison Park and not just win they just outplayed Everton for, for 90 minutes they dominated the game dominated the ball dominated the chances probably the best performance even maybe even tipping tipping Liverpool because of the nature of how dominant Fulham were um, obviously the Burnley game wasn't wasn't very good always a difficult place to go but then they still responded by beating Sheffield United a game that essentially relegated Sheffield United and it ended their sort of sort of hope and it was then that you kick on and as you say Sammy it just didn't happen um you know I think Scott Parker got nominated for manager of the month in February and it was it was a it was that was the highlight that was the best part of the season and um failure to win at Crystal Palace was was really disappointing again Fulham the better team lost to Spurs uh, again, there was a VAR, the Josh Madger goal that wasn't given. So maybe there's a case there. But then Liverpool, which was, you know, Liverpool was the moment, wasn't it? It was the moment where Fulham needed to kick on and um, they just didn't have it in them. And whether that was uh, experience, as we all know about quality, particularly in, in the final third. Um, but there was definitely something, there, some kind of block where, as Jack neatly outlined, you could get the result, some shock results, some good results and deserved results but they're not following up, just unable to to maintain that in, in the games where it really did matter. I mean, yeah, the Liverpool game is the one we will always talk about. It was that, it is, I think it was the biggest what if moment of the season. We're going to come on to our end of season awards in a minute, but that one was the what if for me. I, I, it just, it has to be for everyone, right? It was so kind of season defining how we went there and won. Yes, Liverpool were poor, but we still had to go there and win. And we look what Liverpool have achieved since they finished third in the league in the end. And, and Fulham really were the better team that day. Yes. We rode our luck a little bit at, at the end, but still um, it, it was such an impressive win. Jack, what was the result? There's, there was obviously this run of four defeats. Now the one against city is no point analyzing. We were always not going to win that game, although we were impressive in that match. Was it the Leeds game, the Villa game or the Wolves game for you, which felt like the real kind of, turning point because for me if I think of one turning point in this season it has to be the Leeds game where Lookman misses a chance to put us 2-1 up after the hour two minutes later Rafinha scores that feels to me like a moment where a little bit of belief drained out of this side although you could potentially argue that the Villa game 
was equally or even worse. Yeah, I'm going to. Um, I think the actual thing here is the the kind of timings. Like the Leeds game was the last game before an international break, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. So obviously we lost to City as, as kind of people ex- expected we would. And then the Leeds game was a bit helter-skelter um, and it did feel like a slight missed opportunity. But I, I think there was still kind of real hope that if we we got results at our Villa, we got results at our Wolves, we'd be well in the mix. We weren't miles off at this point. Uh, I think it's, it's important to kind of note. Um, and, and I think we went into that Villa game. We obviously went 1-0 up and suddenly we were out of the relegation zone. Like yeah. we, we really were, we, we were, you know, that felt like the moment that if we, and I said it on that podcast where we had Chris Woff on, you know, that if we got above Newcastle, I think their heads would have gone down. Um, and we didn't, we never got ahead of them. We never got, we never dragged Newcastle into the mire. We kept giving them opportunities to get away from it. And in the end, they started to take those opportunities. Um, yeah. now I, I look, that's not, look, Newcastle finished 17 points above us. So when you look at it like that, it seems a bit ridiculous to be having this conversation. But I do think it might have been different from uh, from a, a different perspective if they had been pulled into the mire. You know, the, it's much easier to motivate people being like, look, they keep dropping points. Let's get away from this and, and stop the conversation. Whereas if you're clawing back, and I think Fulham were, were, were a good example of this. I don't think Fulham's last six, seven results go the way they do if yeah. Fulham... Are, are playing for things. If Fulham win that game at Aston Villa, I think things start, things change. Things in the camp look different. People, that real belief comes in. I think that the heads went at the end of the Villa game because out of nowhere, you know, from being 1-0 up with 12 minutes to play, we lose 3-1. And I think that was the moment we were like, without Jack Grealish, this is a Villa side who'd been in free fall, you know, and we still capitulated. And I think that was the moment for me where I was like, we're not getting out of this. It was an absolute sliding doors moment. I completely agree with you, Jack. I think it's. I think we forget that Fulham were in control for 75 minutes in that match. Villa didn't have a shot on target until the last 15 minutes. It was the the, the nature of that goal, the, the Tyra Mings cut back and the finish for, I think it was Trezeguet, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that impact inexplicably led to, to a collapse. Like the collapse in that game undid Fulham. And then the, once you then get the the way the Wolves game panned out, the nerves of that game, because suddenly the pressure's up a little bit more, then they weren't playing well against Wolves, then you concede late. And then once you get and to then, Arsenal... And then Mario Lamina's in tears, and that's never a good sign. No, no. it just shows the the sort of the weight uh, that they placed on those two games, I think. And, and I think Jack's right. I don't think Newcastle pull away the way they do. Obviously, they're miles ahead now, and you can't look a, a, away from Sam Maximan and Callum Wilson and their roles. But you think to, was it the West Ham game that Newcastle played? I think it was just after this, where Newcastle went uh, 2-0 up. West Ham had 10 men and they still threw it away, but yet they managed to to salvage it. Newcastle were not st- a steady ship by any means at this point. Um, and you just wonder, you just wonder if Fulham had actually been able to just leapfrog them, even for a little bit, what that would have done, not just to the team uh, on, uh, in Newcastle, but also you know the press up there and the fans. It, it it could have completely it could have completely changed, but of course it's it's what ifs. And um, fundamentally, there, been, there were too many of those for Fulham. And um, that 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 little period, Villa Wolves Arsenal, and just the, the late nature of the the results. I think that 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 killed Fulham. They, well, it did, but it was you know psychologically as much as anything. 
the Arsenal game for me, Jack, felt like the end of the season, really. Like, yes, you could have argued that we could have won four out. By, by that time, we were talking miracles. The Arsenal game maybe was the get-out-of-jail card. And then that 97th minute equalised from Eddie and Ketia was... We didn't necessarily 100% know it at the time because there was, you know, a glimmer of hope in, in places. But that was the nail in the coffin, wasn't it, really? To to have it taken from us in such a fashion. No one, no one gets up from that. No one gets up. I think the Wolves game was probably a nail in the coffin, but no one gets up from that kind of 97th minute equaliser like it happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's it. It's um, It's one thing dropping a point to Wolves. It's another thing dropping two the week after to Arsenal. Um, It, it just felt... It felt like the you know the one that knocked us to the canvas and 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 that was it you know unless unless you are literally Tyson Fury there is no getting up from that kind of that kind of punch um so so yeah I, I completely agree that was that was the moment where it was like this is done and dusted um I think the moment where it all changed was Villa the moment the nail was in the coffin was Arsenal and it's mad that there is only two games in between those two things but that's how badly Fulham felt like they had been rocked by what was going on. Okay, right, we're going to take a quick break. And then for the last part of the podcast, it's the Thursday Club End of Season Awards. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy here with Jack and Peter. So for the final part of the podcast, chaps, I want to do some end of season awards. And this is mainly inspired by Peter's article that he wrote in The Athletic today, where he did a similar thing. He did some end of season awards. Um, it's a lot more in depth what Peter did in the article, so do uh, make sure you give that a read. Uh, but we're going to we're going to cherry pick a few of the categories um, in here. Uh, and then also myself and Jack will, will give our opinions on this first. And we'll start with the obvious one, which is player of the season. Uh, and Peter, you didn't go for the obvious answer here. No, um... I mean, Alfonso Ariola has been excellent all season. I, like, no one can question that. And particularly considering the environment he came into with Marit Rodak, number one, Marit Rodak being displaced. And then memories of 2018-19, you know, you have to give credit to him. You know, he lived up to his to his reputation and he was busy as well. It wasn't as though he's he's had a free ride. It was a part of a good, solid defence, but he made some absolutely vital saves throughout the year. But I think both he and, and Joachim Anderson, I think Joachim Anderson obviously has a strong case taking the armband, um, for me, Harrison Reed was player of the season um, just for his consistency. I don't think Ariola pushes him close, but I think his consistency was really did stand out. And for him to step up from from the championship in the way he did to play the role he did in, in midfield, he played more. I think he played more minutes than, than Mario Lamina. Andre Frank and Gisa just sort of went off the ball after after Christmas. But with Reed, you always knew what you were getting. Um, really tidy in possession, always hungry for the tackle. A real energy and driving force in in midfield for Fulham, and he was he played a really important role for for the team this season. And um, I think we've seen him develop and continue to grow. Uh, and for that, for me, is why he's player of the season. And, and he's a player that Fulham will really want to to, to build around and, and make a focal point going forward. I think uh, Jack player of the season. So. I think that Ariola was a worthy winner of this award. And I think that Peter's nailed it when he says the top three probably are Ariola, Anderson, and Reed. I would look to put a left field shout in. Um, now I of course. No, I, I don't think this player was player of the season, but I think they should have probably been near the conversation. And, and that's Mario Lamina. Um, now, I think Mario Lamina has come in and shown 
grit, drive, determination from the moment he set foot in. And look, we were told that Mario Lamina had an attitude problem, right? When he signed, we were told that Mario Lamina was a player who thought he was too good to be in a bottom half Premier League side. He thought he was a Champions League player. We didn't see any of that from the get-go. We saw a player filled with determination who launched himself about, sometimes too much, you know, who was <laughs> willing to, to put his body on the line for Fulham. Now, I don't think he can win this award because I don't actually think he played quite enough. But I, I think there are elements of, of Mario Lamina's campaign that should be, should be rightly applauded and should be rightly uh, given the credence that they deserve. Um, because I, I thought he came in, was exceptional, showed real heart, real soul, um, and, and looked like he really cared from from kind of minute one. Um, so I just wanted to put a little shout out for Lamina. It's an interesting one. We're all going to disagree with the fans here because I wouldn't go for, for, for Ariola, And I'm simply being quite mathematical over this. I think Anderson made the bigger difference to our team. I think Anderson actually made our defence what it is. Yes, Ariola saved us numerous times. I guess for me, I don't know how many points he would have saved compared to Marek Rodak. I, I think there was a few. I think there was a few games that Ariola kept us in. Definitely, I am not discrediting what he did this season, but I think Anderson transformed our defence. And had we stayed up, it would have been largely because of him. And it was our defence that gave us the chance this season. Obviously, we know that it's the attack that's let us down. And, and I think the way that Addison carried himself was fantastic. I, I mean, a bit of a blot on his copybook, maybe some of his performances in the last kind of like six to seven games weren't as immaculate as, as they had been and a few mistakes creeped in. But I, I think he had a wonderful season and I really, really wish him well, not just at his next club, but also this summer with Denmark. I really hope he can um, get a couple of games under his belt um, there. So that would be brilliant. Uh, right. Next one is goal of the season. Uh, Peter, what did you go for? Olerainer against uh, West Brom. I mean, we didn't see many Ooh, goals banger. at uh, Craven Cottage and... Um, that was definitely for me the, the pick of the lot. I, I remember I wasn't really properly watching at that point. I thought maybe I was tweeting or something and uh, looked up and just see the ball fly into the net. It was an absolute rocket. And um, yeah, it was a, a, rem, a, rare, a rare home goal, really. <laughs> um, yeah. So for that reason, it really does stick in the mind. Um, there weren't too many to choose from, fortunately. Uh, Jack? Well, it's not the best goal that Fulham scored this season because uh, the best goal that Fulham scored this season was sc scored by Olaina, as you've just mentioned. Um, but maybe my favourite was Matt Ritchie's own goal in the, in the <laughs> Newcastle United game. There is no point at all in the season where uh, the ball hitting someone in the face and going into the net won't be funny. Um, and therefore, I, I just want to just nominate that because it was great fun and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Aside from that... Um, Bobby Reed's first goal in the West Brom away game um, was a really, really good goal. And it was the moment that I was like, this is how it works. This is how we stay up, Mitrovic and Bobby Reed linking in, playing really well together. I was like, this is the system. And I think that moment for me felt really, really important. And obviously it didn't turn out to be. But because of the nature of that goal and the way that it was just laid off beautifully and Bobby Reed finished it with a plomb. Um, I was just like, that's a great, great Fulham goal and exactly how Fulham should have been playing. And it did feel like a breakthrough moment for a minute. And then suddenly it was all taken away again. See, my one has to be Bobby Reed against Liverpool. I think not just because there were fans at the cottage, but I think it was such a good finish against Allison as well, who, um, you know, is, is, a, is an absolutely world-class goal-scoring keeper. Um, 
I just thought it was it was a magic magic moment. Definitely the one that um, got my dad and I, uh, my dad and I off our seats um, the quickest this year. Um, maybe it wouldn't have been quite so special had it been behind closed doors. It did feel extra special, you know, seeing that Putney end um, celebrating with Bobby Reed. But um, that was that was my definitely my favourite goal of the season. There was a few goals in that kind of way this season, kind of like struck low and hard at the far post like that. Um, Bobby Reed did it as well against Everton. And then obviously the Lamina goal against Liverpool uh, was also in the same fashion. So maybe Fulham needed to try that a little bit more uh, in the season. Uh, this one's quite a fun one. Worst opposition goal of the season. Um, I mean, we did discuss quite a lot of them in, in, in part two. Uh, Peter, what did you go for? Uh, Eddie and Ketty against Arsenal. Um, the, the late nature of it. You know, as we've discussed, that was the nail in the coffin. It was absolutely savage, really. Um, but also the, how the goal was conceded, um, the sort of panic that had set in in those final 15 minutes, as, as we talked about, those little mistakes, the corner that was given away that led to the, the, the succession of chances and the fact that Matt Ryan wins a header in the box. Um, Sabayas has so much space and, and then and Ketia sticks it away. It was... It was brutal, and also I don't really know where the seven minutes came from either. So all of those factors together sort of make it for me the worst opposition goal. Uh, I think I might have to go for Lee Westwood's. Not Lee Westwood. He's a welfer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? How are you linking those? <laughs> Where's it going here? <laughs> yeah. I was like, I know you like to go left field, but trying to pick a golfer as yeah. our worst opposition goal yeah. of the season is quite something. Right, right, <laughs> it's one hell of a revisionism. <laughs> I think I might have to go for Ashley Westwood's first goal uh, for Burnley in the game that sent us down. Now, obviously, the the writing was on the wall before this, but the fact that one long ball over the top just took out our entire defence um, mm. w- w- was absolutely comical. And we'd been given a let off about two seconds beforehand as well with another long ball over the top that had done nothing. And the week beforehand, Kai Havertz had just got in over the top um, and scored for Chelsea. So it wasn't like suddenly we just couldn't defend long balls. And it was like, w- what's going on here? This defence has been really good for a lot of the season and suddenly we're completely at sea with just balls over the top and I think that first one against Burnley just got to the point where you were like I'll oh, just end it just end it now like somebody finish the season so so yeah I'm gonna go with that uh my one I am just going to I, and and I probably agree it probably was Eddie and Ketia but the one that annoyed me most um was was Callum Wilson's penalty uh up at St James's Park I was livid I was seething at that one just because it was so obviously not a penalty. How VAR couldn't see that a foul was not inside the box um, still infuriates me to, to this to this day. And I think that would have been such a massive win, uh, a, a crucial part of the season. So I'm going to go with that one. Okay, final category that we're going to go for is is a custom category. So we each picked an award and a recipient for that award um, that that we're going to go into so um jack i'll start with you what would you like to go for for your special award uh, my favorite instagram post of the season from a player um and it, <laughs> okay. it goes to andre frank zambo Angisa, who posted yeah. a picture in front of a mercedes um with him mario lamina abubo hakamara niskas cabano and jean michel seri um, and they are all dripped out <laughs> like it's like well it's well cool like they're all wearing like 
some absolutely ludicrous clothing uh, and and I, and I absolutely love it frankly they look they look absolutely wild and um, so so i'm going for that because i remember watching that and being like yes my guys <laughs> my guys um so so yeah i'm going for that they're just all the boys just dripping out i enjoyed that too uh peter your special award of the season uh, my special award is VAR of the season, since uh, we're bidding farewell to, to VAR now. Um, yeah. There are plenty to choose from, uh, but the winner for me was Lee Mason in the uh, home game, Fulham against Liverpool, uh, for not giving... Actually, I don't know if I should just give it to Lee Mason, because I think Lee Mason sort of got it right. Maybe it's Andre Mariner, who's the, the main official on the day. Because Lee Mason sent, sent, was sent uh, Mariner over to the camera, didn't he? Okay, I'm going to give it to, to Andre Mariner. He's going to be usurped yeah. on the stage. Um, for, <laughs> for I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> <laughs> um, for Fabinho's tackle on Ivan Cavallero, which somehow didn't end up as a penalty when it was quite clearly a penalty, although I think it was Jamie Carragher who was on co-commentary, seemed to think, oh, it, was, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a pen, but it quite clearly yeah. was. Shot Mariner goes that. <laughs> Mariner goes over to the, to, the, to the screen, looks at it, shakes his head like, no, no thanks, Lee, and then doesn't give it. Um, so that, for me, was, was via of the season. Now, there are so, so many contenders. I would have given the Josh Madger one against Spurs, but that was, it wasn't actually VAR, it was the Laurel, and, you know, not going not gonna to taint VAR with that one. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Andre Mariner gets the, gets the award. I mean, there have been a couple of where Fulham have benefited from VAR this season, all kind of legitimately. But the amount there was a point where almost every goal that Fulham conceded, I was like, yeah, it's going to be offside. It's going to definitely be offside because our offside line for quite a few games in a row really did just get, get us out of a, uh, some really sticky situations. Huge uh, credit to the boys. To... Huge credit to the offside line. You know, they're, they're running <laughs> yeah. an absolutely tight ship there. I don't think Fulham actually were on the end of a bad, like tight offside call goal scoring wise. We obviously, um, there was a few that didn't go our way, um, that were tight, um, at the other end, but I, I can't remember a goal that Fulham scored that was ruled out by offside, which I guess was fairly pleasing. Um, but yeah, uh, it's cause we didn't make any runs in behind for the entire season. Yeah. It probably says goals. more about our attack. Um, <laughs> So for me, my special award uh, is going to be missed penalty of the season. I've got a bronze, silver, gold uh, here. There were only three, to be fair. Um, I'm going to go in third place. I'm going to go for Cavalero against Everton, um, mainly because I don't think this affected the results of the game too much because uh, he who should not be named uh, did actually score his only goal of the season uh, about a minute afterwards. So it slightly negated the effect, although it was an important penalty just because it felt like full of had a curse over them because it was about the third missed penalty in four games. I'm going to be controversial here and put Adamola Lookman uh, as second here. He's going to get silver for the Penenka against West Ham. I think it was slightly blown out of proportion because of the way it was missed and what he did. But actually, yes, it cost us a point. And I remember at the time, a lot of us saying, oh, Fulham go down by a point. It'll all be Lookman's fault. Ultimately, it was 11. So you definitely couldn't shoulder the entire season's failure on Adamola Lookman. But for me, gold... Mitrovic against Sheffield United. I think that missed penalty changes Mitrovic's season. And dare I say it, does he miss the penalty 
for Serbia if he doesn't miss that penalty, which I then think affected his whole season. I don't, it's quite a lot of what about you? Yeah, you've done. I, you, 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 you're, you're stretching there. You're like missing the. You know what's her name? Mrs. Incredible. Um. I I just think that got in Mitrovic's head after that. I really felt like it was like the cutting of Samson's hair in the Bible. It just you, you never saw the same Mitrovic after We've that. We've had some references today, haven't we? Elastigirl <laughs> and Sam. Samson in the same in the same thing here is uh is quite something. <laughs> Only on Fulhamish. Don't get this anywhere else. Uh, right. Well, there we go. There are end of season awards. Uh, if you agree or disagree, feel free to tweet at Peter Rutzler. Um, the, the, his his article is up on the Athletic as well. That he's wait. Why just me? Why just me? Yeah, just the criticism. No, 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 don't give me it. Don't give me a Sammy abuse. <laughs> just give it to no, me. Just, <laughs> it's Peter's job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking the fall for your opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's paid daily to uh, to deal with with, with your complaints. Um, right, thank you so much for listening this season. Um, as ever, it is always a joy to do Fulhamish, even in the toughest of of, of seasons. And, and this one's certainly been right up there. Not just because we were relegated, we couldn't go to games either. Um, it, it's not been terribly fun at all times. But um, as I'm sure Jack will agree, doing Fulhamish uh, and speaking to you guys on a bi-weekly basis is definitely uh, very cathartic for us and uh, we really appreciate all your messages, all your questions, all your tweets uh, that, that you send us on a really, really regular basis and for the people that support us on Kofi an extra thank you as well for, for keeping Fulhamish running um, and so yeah, I, I just want to say thank you to you listening. Um, Peter thank you so much uh, for everything you've done this season, not just on the podcast podcast but also your writing on the athletic i know that a lot of people have been really grateful for all the words that you've put in for for fulhamish this season all the great um interviews and articles as well and um yeah it's been really really lovely having you on the podcast this year giving us the kind of insight and a really important insight as well considering that we haven't been able to go to games it's been fantastic to have someone that's inside the club and and, and at matches as well in, in this year more than any year no, thank you for having me. It's been lovely to be a part of the, the Fulhamish fold and uh, and thank you for, for welcoming me in. And I've had lots of really nice messages. So thank you all for that. And thank you for everyone who's subscribed as well. It's it's not possible without without you guys. So um, no, I've really enjoyed it. It's been it's been fun. It's been fun despite a second relegation. But, um, you know, only it's only upwards from here. Exactly. Uh, Jack, any final words before uh, we finish the podcast? Uh, just seeing as this is the final pod for, for a little while, we're going to have a nice little well-earned break, uh, I think is probably fair to say. Um, obviously, we'll be back if there's any breaking news regarding regarding Fulham. Uh, but if you yeah. miss me in that time, you can listen to me on Ranks FC, where I'm going to be still going three times a week. So here you are. Uh, it's all yeah, going to be yeah. fun. Do uh, have a good old listen to to Ranks FC, a, a fantastic podcast, and support them on Patreon as well uh, for the, for the extra shows. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening this season. As Jack um, basically alluded to, there we're going to take a break probably for most of June. Um, doesn't see much point talking about Fulham when like the Euros are on and I, and. But if there is any breaking news, I don't know if um, Fulham uh, sign Ronaldo or um, Nuno uh, replaces Scott. Parker is manager or something crazy like that. I, I, I'm sure we will call uh, an emergency podcast at the soonest point available. But um, have a great summer. Uh, enjoy the Euros uh, and and hopefully whatever country you're supporting uh, does well in the Euros. And uh, you know, from a personal point of view, come on England. Hopefully we can uh, 
go one step further than uh, than last time's World Cup. And losing the final. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Knew you'd pop in at that moment. Um, but thank you very much for listening. Come on, you eyes. You eyes. You swans. You swans. Come in, Wayne Routledge. Come in, Agent Wayne. <laughs> All Routledge, aren't we? <laughs>